We're going to jump in now to the uh, book of Colossians. So I want you guys to open up there. Uh, tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing this morning. It's going to be a little bit different than we normally do on Sunday mornings. Um, I'll explain. Um, we are going to be taking a look at the subject matter of prayer. So I'll just tell you straight up what we're going to be looking at. It's the subject matter of prayer. So as we've been going through the book of Colossians, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, coming to the end of it, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the subject matter of prayer. And what Paul does is he actually invites the Colossian believers, the ones that he's never met, the ones to whom he's writing to, the ones that he's actually concerned about because they are in grave danger of their minds being taken away from the simplicity that's in Christ. In other words, they are being tempted towards quasi-heretical teachings. But nonetheless, regardless of how small they are in their faith or how young they are in Jesus or how they don't even know Paul, Paul actually invites them in into this radical incredibly rich relationship with him to partner with him in praying that God would do great things through the unpacking, the unfolding of the gospel. And, and we'll take a look at that in just a moment. But the reason why I say today is a little bit unique or different is because I was, I was setting for this, preparing for this, um, in my mind I'm thinking, you know, I'm getting ready to talk about prayer. That's awesome. But what's even more awesomer is that if not just simply talking about prayer, but we actually prayed, we did it. And I was really challenged by that to think, you know, I can, I can whip out a sermon for an hour, tell you guys about prayer, but I don't know how beneficial that would be per se, is perhaps if we were to just take a look at some of the elements of prayer and then spend the rest of our time as a church praying. I mean, and we'll unpack what that will look like in just a moment, but I want to spend a, a brief amount of time taking a look at the subject matter of prayer, because like I said, we've been going through this great book, and I want to spend some time looking at what Paul has to say about prayer, and we'll make a few comments about prayer that Paul outlines for us, and then we'll really, like I said, in short, conclude by just spending some time praying. And uh, what I want to do right now is I want to read the passages that we'll be taking a look at. So if you guys hopefully have your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 4. I think I told you 4, maybe I said 3, but uh, chapter 4, we'll pick it up in around verse 2. We'll read down to about verse 9. I might make a couple comments as I go on uh, through this. Um, and then I'll pray uh, as soon as I'm done reading, and then we'll get to work looking at prayer, and then we will pray. Sound good? Let's get to work. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am a prisoner, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward the outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Verse 7, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Says, you know, we don't really know a whole lot about Tychicus, but what we do know is what Paul tells us here. And this is what Paul tells us, is that he is a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. Obviously, he's done his job well. A lot of people love him. And then Paul says, um, and he's a fellow servant in the Lord. In other words, uh, he's one of us. He's a faithful guy. He's, been, he's done a good job at the task that he was given, at, that he was assigned. And he's going to come to you guys, what Paul says. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may uh, encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother, uh, who is one of you, he will tell you everything that has taken place. So Paul is writing this little letter, four chapters, uh, to this group of people called 
uh, Colossians. They live in a city called Colossae. So they're Christians. And Paul's amazed by the reality that, that God is unfolding his kingdom in the middle of the Roman Empire. And what Paul's shocked about and amazed by and blown away by is the fact that the people whom God is reaching, the people whom are being swept up, brought into his kingdom, are not necessarily Jews, although there are some. But for the most part, they were former pagan worshipers, uh, former idolaters, former non-Jews, uncircumcised people are, are being brought into God's kingdom. They're being swept up into the work that God is doing and, and here's Paul writing to this group of people. Uh, at this particular time, most people believe that Paul was actually in prison and jail as he's writing to these people. And so Paul can't go to them himself. Paul actually did not plant the church there in Colossae. Uh, a guy named Epaphras probably did. And uh, so Paul had relations with people that were part of this church or connected to this church. And so because Paul can't go, he sends uh, these two guys, Tychicus and this other guy, Onesimus, to go tell the believers there in Colossae, uh, what's been happening with Paul and how the work of the gospel is unpacking and uh, being moved all throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, the, word, uh, or the guy named Onesimus, he's an important guy. There's actually a whole uh, little letter, I should say, in the New Testament. It's called uh, Philemon, if you ever read that. Uh, it's kind of hard to even call it a letter. It's more like a postcard. It's really small. It's a couple chapters, or actually a couple uh, paragraphs. And it was actually written to a guy named Philemon, having to do with this particular guy, Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave uh, that was working for this guy, Philemon, who ran away. But when he was running away, uh, he came in contact with Paul. And he heard Paul preaching the gospel. And, ironically, Onesimus got saved. Paul had formerly known Philemon. And so that's what the whole letter of Philemon is about. I'm not going to teach you about Philemon right now, you can read on your own. But the point of the matter is, is Paul is basically bringing to close this great letter and summarizing a lot of thoughts. But like I said, what I want to focus on this morning is really the subject matter of prayer. So I want to start or lead into this by asking you guys a series of questions to really think about. Because in Paul's writing, the way that Paul has been basically unpacking this from the very beginning, is he wants the Colossian believers to understand that God is at work bringing into being, bringing into existence a kingdom, a new way of being human, new life, new creation is breaking forth. We know that because new creation is exactly what the resurrection was all about. New creation began at the resurrection when Jesus rose again from the dead. And that began to have a ripple effect throughout the entire, not just uh, Jerusalem region, but in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the world. And what that looked like was that people that were normally enemies of God, people that were normally outside of God, people that normally did not think according to the paradigm of God, people that didn't think according to the worldview of God, people that were lost the way that Paul would say. These people are being swept up, brought in, changed, transformed by the power of the gospel. And this is what Paul has been telling them. And that at the center of all of this new creation talk, at the center of all of this new creation experience is one, Jesus. He's holding all things together. He's unfolding this all. He's sweeping people up. He's changing people. He's saving people, washing them of their sins, cleansing them of their defilement, giving them new hearts, fueling their lives with new purpose and meaning and significance. This is what at the heart of the gospel all this is about. And so what Paul is saying is that because Jesus is at the center of this new creation project, because he holds all things together, let's go to him and ask him to continue to do this work in all of these unreached areas. In other words, what Paul is saying, let's pray. 
because he's the one that holds all things together. So here's a question I want to ask you. Look at your life. What are the things that functionally you and I turn to to keep our lives organized, to keep our lives in sync, to keep our lives in pace, to keep our lives equalized, balanced? What are the things that we turn to? I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, one of the things I think we'd have to say that oftentimes is that we turn to strategizing, analyzing, measuring as means, as first go-to elements that we turn to. Self-help books. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of these things in and of themselves. But what ends up happening, and by simply turning those things first, in essence, what we're saying is that the real things that keep our lives intact, the real things that keep our lives moving forward, the real things that keep our lives balanced is our strategy, is our measuring, is our ability to be able to navigate and circumnavigate our lives and figure out how to get around circumstances that are challenging or disruptive to the rest of our lives. Rather than saying, he holds all things together, let's go to him. He holds all things in his hands. He is the one who is the author of this new creation. He is the one who has a plan for all things. He is the one that holds my life. And not only is he just some sort of random power or force that the universe has created, he's not just that. He is that, but not less than that, but far more than that. He is a God that, although being all-powerful, is all-kind, which means he's not just a power figure, power figure, but he's also a loving father, which means he really cares about us. And here's what Paul is saying, is that because we've been swept into this brand new creation that's called the gospel, that was initiated at Jesus' resurrection, and it's bringing, bringing transformation and change and undoing and restoring what the devil has destroyed and replacing former lifestyles that were basically prone towards being a thief or stealing or lying or sexual morality or all of these other things that are destructive in their behavior. What Jesus is doing is he's setting people free. He's restoring, renewing. So rather in the place of there just being this constant fraying, constant division, constant divorcing, constant breakdown, in its place comes reconciliation. In its place comes, rather than stubbornness, a sense of a softened heart. In its place, rather than having thin skin where everything that someone says against me, I feel the need to become defensive and fight and resistant. Now I can have my heart and my life balanced in a brand new place, brand new position, so that we're free. What Paul's saying is the gospel is held together through Jesus, by Jesus, bringing transformation throughout this entire world. Paul says, I'm going to invite you in to come to this Jesus and ask God to do great things. And here's the thing. What you're not going to hear from me today. Because oftentimes, maybe if you've been like me, I've been brought up in environments or I've heard sermons in the past where at the end of hearing that sermon, I feel horrible. I feel like, ah. I don't pray enough. The whole sermon was on how you should pray more. You're not doing enough of it. I feel horrible. I feel like a horrible Christian. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Maybe I need to like, give my life to Jesus again because I failed again. You're not going to get that today. There's a lot of means that we can use to somehow guilt you or control you or manipulate you into praying. But at the end of the day, all of those things at some point will fall short and fail and either bring you to a place of feeling super arrogant because you are fantastic 
Christian who prays all the time and you're better than all the other people that don't and you wear that like a badge of honor or you kind of lean towards more like I've just described, full of despair, you're not really good, God shouldn't answer any of your prayers because you don't even pray very often. But what I want for us to understand, that the better way to be fueled by this is to understand the scope, the brevity, the power, the greatness of what Jesus is actually inviting us into to be a part of the unfolding of the gospel. So in other words, Paul's praying really is radically gospel-centered. So I want to basically give you five ways in which Paul is going to describe this. I'm going to go through these very quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, and then we're going to finish. And then we're going to spend some time praying. I'll I'll share with you how we'll do that in a moment. So let's take a look at five ways in which Paul describes prayer as being. One, Paul describes it as continual. Next slide, he says in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. All right, continue steadfastly in prayer. The word continue can also be translated in the New Testament as uh, devoted or be devoted. And it's a way in which Paul uses it in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 12. He says this, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant or devoted in prayer. So Paul's saying, look, you're going to have tribulation, it's going to happen. Which is another way of basically saying trials, hardships. Things aren't going to go the way that you intended or planned. But nonetheless, in the midst of those things, turn to God. Now, why can Paul say turn to God in the midst of things that you didn't plan for? Because if we live with this lens over our lives and we're convinced that at the center of the world in which we live in is a God who loves us and a God who is in control, wouldn't it make sense to turn to him? It would just make sense. And most of us know this in theory. Most of us know this episodically in action. I'll give you an example, all right? If and when times in my past, uh, I got two daughters that are both teenagers. There have been times when, you know, my, something would happen to my daughters. Like they're sick or my wife was really sick. And, but, you know, you get really scared. And you know that you don't think the doctor can necessarily help you or you're not able to get to the doctor right then. So what do you do? You go straight to God. Because, you know, in those moments, this is absolutely outside of my control. I, I don't know what I can do. I, I just go to the one who has the power over this. So again, in episodes, I can find myself going periodically to God when I'm absolutely faced with the reality that I know there is no one who can help me in this scenario other than God. And most of us have been in circumstances like that, right? But I'm talking about on the typical day-by-day, life-in, life-out, ordinary transactions that we have with the world around us. Most of the time, we would say, in theory, we believe that God is in control of everything, but in practice... We act as if something else is in control. That's why we turn to our planning, our plotting, our organizing. Not, let me just say a word on that real quick. Is there anything wrong with any of those? Not at all. In fact, I often describe to people, I'm like, look, it's good for you to have a plan. I spend a lot of time talking with dudes, dudes that are trying to figure life out. And one thing I oftentimes say is, have a plan. Have a five-year plan. Think about what type of job you're going to get. Think about where you're going to live. Think about what church you're going to be involved in. Think about how you're going to be involved in that church. Think about what type of money you're going to use to contribute to the gospel in the kingdom of God. Think about all these things. Think about how you're go- what type of girl you want to get married to. How many kids? Think about all of these things. Make a game plan. It's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with making a game plan. Because sometimes people are like, well, what about the passage in James? Where it says, you don't plan about what you're going to do the next day. I think the idea behind that is if you become the main person in your life calling the shots and you see yourself as the only one calling the shots, then yeah, that's, that's fueled by the flesh. 
that's built upon a false conception that you're in control of everything. That's not true. That's an illusion that you've believed. And what the gospel says is, no, no, no. God is actually in control of everything. And if we build a plan, if we strategize, if we analyze, if we measure elements of our lives, that's fine. Often, here's what I often have to say. Is that, look, build out a plan, write it out, but write it in pencil. And then give the eraser to God. Let God make any modifications, changes, erasures, or whatever it is that he chooses in your life, in your game plan. Have a game plan. There's nothing wrong with that. But let God do whatever he wants to do. So the point of the matter is, is that we're going to begin to take a look at some of these ideas that are going to unpack here. So first of all, let praying be continual. Let it be something that you do all the time. Now, this, there's some myths that need to be you know, defunct right here. Because, for example, when I was young, as a, as a young Christian, well, actually even before I was a Christian, I was brought up in... Uh, in a church environment, um, not a Protestant church environment. And what I was taught was that you got to pray all the time. And the way that you pray is you either have to, uh, you know, do one or two things, if not both. Close your eyes and fold your hands. Like, anybody else thought that? Like, you got to fold your hands either like this or, or like this. And, and I actually think now, like, later on, several years later in my life, I, I probably think the reason why uh, my parents and my teachers told me to do that is because I had fidgety hands. And that they were tired when we would pray my hands are always moving around doing something. So that was their way of basically binding my hands so that I'm not getting myself in trouble. But here's the thing. How can you pray if your eyes are closed and your hands are like this? Continually. Obviously, that's a myth that the Bible doesn't necessarily say or a method the Bible does not uh, give us to say this is how you got to pray. So how can you pray? Well, I think the idea is, is you just pray in your heart. God, thank you. Thank you for this day. God, help me in this circumstance. God, save me. God, rescue me. God, give me wisdom in this moment. These are, these are ways in which we pray continually. These are ways in which we as a church pray regularly. Oftentimes like to encourage families, especially dads, create a culture of prayer in your household. Not just like you do it every once in a while, but create a culture. And what I mean by that is any single time something goes challenging or hard or wrong, or you find out something going on in your life, or you need wisdom for something, or you get money, and you're like, what are we going to do with this? Just create a culture by in every one of the circumstances you go to God. We've tried to do it in our home. Like any single time my kids tell us something that's going on in their life or their week or their day or someone else's life, we, we just, we're like, let's just pray right now. Let's just, let's just stop what we're doing right now. Let's just pray. Take it to God. He's our father. He loves us. He cares for us. He cares about this circumstance, no matter how small it might be. I want my kids to grow up knowing that God actually cares about big monster things, but he also cares about tiny little, what would even to most people feel really totally non-relevant, but God cares about all these things. Pray continually. Second thing, uh, let it be expectant. And what the word that's typically used here is um, to just be watchful, to expect God to do something. The idea is that when you pray, be on the lookout for the answer. I I like this idea because oftentimes we pray and we actually forget what we prayed for. We just kind of go on the rest of our life. But the idea of expectancy is like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to intervene and move and work and give wisdom and give help and uh, help me to be part of the solution here or whatever. And then I'm going to just look for God to give those answers in those circumstances. Be expectant. Oftentimes encourage people to think about this, especially Saturday night before you're going to go to church in the morning. Be expectant. Do, do you expect God to meet you here right now with God's people? Or is this just kind of a gathering where you've got to listen to a guy yell at you for an hour? I, I mean, honestly, sometimes I think we don't interact with God in ways in which God really wants for us to interact with him is because we're just not really expectant. 
Now, that doesn't mean that God can't break through our lack of expectancy, and oftentimes he does. But one of the things that Paul encourages the Colossian believers, and I think all Christians should just have is sort of this expectancy that, well, duh, he's God. Of course he wants to bless. You know, one of the interesting things about my children is that this is why sometimes little kids can ask some of the most bold requests. Have you ever noticed that? Kids are not in any way, shape, or form shy to ask big, bold requests of mom and dad. Have you noticed that? Like, mom, dad, can I drive the car? <laughs> You're too young. Like, no, I mean, I, I, I physically can't allow you to do that. But the fact of the matter that they would even ask that says a lot about their confidence in dad's ability or even generosity to want to do that. Even though he's bound by law to say not to. Unless you live somewhere in North County. And the <laughs> point of the matter is, is that they have big faith. Because they see their dad or their mom as being big and powerful and able and willing to do big things. So the idea is kids oftentimes have this huge level of expectancy from their mom or dad. And oftentimes we don't. I think oftentimes one of the reasons why we don't is we struggle with prayers because we see our world and our God is both being really small. We're just not really confident in the competency of God to move, to work. Or even his desire to want to move and work. And yet, Paul says, pray expectantly. Thirdly, pray thankfully. Have a thankful heart. Um, this is kind of an interesting thought. But really what Paul is saying is that like, when you pray, thank God. It's not just like, you know, thank God for things in the past. What's kind of interesting about this is that if you look throughout the Old Testament, I heard someone once kind of describe it this way. If you take the entirety of the Old Testament, like every single year that we have chronicled for us, and every single miracle that happened of the children of Israel's um, experience, either through the wilderness or coming out of Egypt or all sorts of other circumstances in their life, if you were to sort of um, kind of put that onto a timeline, it would break down to around a miracle every 35 to 37 years. We have this tendency to kind of think like, oh my gosh, God did miracles with Israel like every other day. And here we are in the modern Christian world and we're like, we don't see miracles ever happen. I heard someone even kind of do an analysis on the book of Acts. That if you were to chronicle every single miracle throughout the book of Acts and every year that's sort of chronicled in there, you're looking at, again, maybe a miracle every, I don't know, couple years to 10 years. That's chronicle. Now, that's not, that's, not miracle, that's not that miracles didn't happen more often, more regularly. But here's my point. Is we oftentimes pray uh, and, and want to see something happen right now. If it doesn't happen, then, then we're frustrated. We're upset. Or what oftentimes can happen is that we pray and we refuse to really give thanks until we get what we want. But here what I think Paul is saying is when you pray, give thanks. You don't even have it yet. You don't even have the check to pay the late fees on your mortgage yet. You don't even have the stuff that you need. But you pray for it and you trusted God to give to you whatever it is that God wants. According to the glory of his name. According to the purposes of the gospel. And you just thank him for it. That's what Paul is saying. He's calling them to be thankful. The fourth thing is we see that prayer is also very personal. It has a very personal element. It's what Paul says. He says, pray for us. So Paul says, look, I need prayer. And this is kind of what astounds me again, like I mentioned earlier, or alluded to earlier. Paul invites these people that are weak in their faith, 
that are young as Christians. Paul's never met them. And not only that, but these people are actually prone to being tempted into false spiritual practices that were prevalent within that Lycan Valley in which Colossae was one of the three major cities right there. In other words, what Paul's not doing is he's not going to a bunch of spiritual elite ninjas and be like, you guys are prayer warriors. Pray for me. I need your prayers. You guys are supernatural, powerful prayer beings. And I need you. Paul's going to people that are weak in their faith, young in their Christian walk, and prone to strange theological behavior. And Paul says, please pray for me, guys. I need your help. That should give us hope. You know what that means? If you're here and you're a Christian today, no matter how strong, how weak, how much faith, how little faith you have in God, you can pray. God invites you, and your prayers actually matter. They matter to God, and they're powerful, because this is the means by which God uses. And finally, we see that this is also very gospel-focused. And so what Paul asks for, I'll read this little section right here. It's in uh, verses four. Verse four says, that I may make it clear, actually I'll pick it up at verse three. He says, at the same time, pray for us that God may open us a door for the word. That's kind of a shorthand that Paul uses oftentimes to say the word of the gospel. That God would open for us a door for the word of the gospel to be preached. And then Paul goes on to say, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so very clearly what Paul's emphasizing or unpacking here is that, guys, pray for me because I want to make the gospel as clear as I can when I speak. So Paul obviously was more of a a spokesman within the church and Paul's ministry from God uh, was far more vocal. Paul was more of a speaker for God uh, to preach and proclaim. That's kind of majority of what Paul's ministry was. And so Paul's asking him, hey, you guys, the gospel is central. This is why I'm asking you to pray. So if you can think of it this way, um, prayer does not replace the preaching of the word. Prayer actually is what empowers the preaching of the word. All right, let me say that again. Prayer is not to be replaced by, uh, prayer doesn't replace the preaching of the word. Prayer actually empowers the preaching of the word. You see this as a pattern throughout the New Testament. Every single time the, children, uh, the, the, the early church was found itself in challenging circumstances, they would go to pray, and at the end of their prayers was always some sort of a little statement like this. And the word of God uh, moved forward boldly. And there was always sort of this direct result that as God's people prayed, that the word of God was able to move forward. Now again, it's important for us to understand that God's word moves forward, not just by speaking, but also by our actions. Or if you can put it this way, not just by word, but also by deed. Which is probably the link or the connection that Paul makes between verses 4 to 5. Because if you kind of read that, like I read it earlier this week... It's kind of like, what's the connection between verse 4 and verse 5? I mean, on one hand, verse 4, Paul's talking about the word being spoken. Pray for me so I can speak clearly. And then Paul immediately shifts in, this, in the middle of this sort of like, you know, question. He goes, pray with me. Paul immediately shifts, and then he begins to talk to them by way of exhortation. He says, and you guys, conduct yourselves wisely toward uh, outsiders, non-Christians, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer every single person. So in other words, what Paul basically does is he says, look, the gospel is really what we're all about here. Announcing this unbelievably good news that King Jesus is at the center of all things. He holds all things in his hands. He is undoing evil. He is breaking the power, the forces of darkness, and he's remaking lives that were once shattered or destroyed or burned out. 
He's reshaping them, remaking them, and replacing flower beds where there was once nothing but ash. That's what Jesus is doing. And Paul is saying the way that God does this is through the gospel. And the way the gospel goes out is by you guys praying. As a church, praying, seeking God to do what God wants to do so the gospel goes out. Not just by word, but also by deed. How we speak, how we talk, the things we say, but also the way that we live. And we just spent the past three weeks talking about how the gospel uh, informs and impacts and changes and transforms our lives in all those specific roles in terms of our families, our marriages, and the work environments. We will all find ourselves at some point. The gospel is intended to change us. In other words, God truly loves, if I can put it this way, loves this world. Do you believe that? He loves this world. That he gave his son, you know, as John 3.16 says, to rescue this world, to save people from their darkness, to set them free, to bring them to light so they'd be changed. But the way that God has done that is not just by simply snapping his fingers and making it happen, but by calling a bunch of people that were once caught, stuck, captives in that world. And because they were once stuck, captives in that world, they were in their minds hostile towards God, and therefore they were enemies of God. But now, no longer. Once an enemy, now a child. Once an orphan, now a son and a daughter. Once somebody that was alienated, now has been brought totally near, brought to the table, and been given the place of highest honor. Regardless of your skin color, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of whether or not you're rich or poor, slave or master, it doesn't matter. Paul's whole point is that this gospel is going forth and I'm inviting you to be part of the process of this by praying for me. Praying that God would do what God wants to do. So I want to finish. And here's what I want to do. Over the past week, couple weeks actually has been preparing, thinking about this. I realize that we live obviously in a culture that's very much so, um, in so many ways, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say, uh, anti-Christian. Frustrated with Christian, at least. Maybe in the most simplistic terms. Just frustrated with Christianity. Christianity uh, does not have the center stage anymore uh, the way it did a couple hundred years ago. And perhaps there's a lot of reasons for that. Maybe because what had happened was Christians that had center stage, maybe abused powers and so on and so forth. I'm not going to go through an analysis on that right now. But the point of the matter is, is that for the most part, the Christian message, the gospel, has been greatly hindered in a lot of ways in our culture. And the reality is, is that culture, I heard it kind of described this way, culture is actually shaped from uh, top down. We know that because if you look around society, those that are actually shaping the culture, those that are actually saying, hey, you should do this, are usually those that are celebrities, they're rock stars, they're you know, well-known people, they're politicians, they're somebody that has a great name. So they come on the scene just because they have a really good face and a chiseled abs. They come on the scene and they're like, hey, everybody should wear these types of clothes. Then all of a sudden, everybody's wearing those types of clothes. Just because Miley Cyrus gets a funky haircut, now everybody else is going to start getting those funky haircuts. Remember when Justin Bieber was around? All these little kids like age 12 are getting their, kind of just let their hair grow out. It's because culture is being shaped. Some of you are like, that was me. Like, shame on you for that. The point of the matter is, is that culture is shaped from the bottom down, or from the top down. Moves of God are not shaped from the top down. They're shaped from the bottom up. In other words, God takes people that are lowly, that are broken, that were once part of the broken system, that have now been redeemed and transformed, brought low, while on their knees, within the place of seeking God in this 
fallen creation is Jesus who wants to bring new creation. And as God's people gather, unite their heart in agreement, asking God to do good things, new things, fresh things, to create new inroads, new possibilities for the gospel to engage this broken culture around us. Then we see people transformed. We see people that are stuck and bound in sin and habits of sin and destructiveness and codependency and dysfunctionality set free. We see people that were stuck in areas of just stubbornness, not wanting to get out of their place, where their hearts now become set free. And rather than being cynical, they become worshipers. And rather than just being people that, you know, stand on the sideline and look at Jesus and they're like, I'm impressed by the guy, he's pretty good. But now, they're, now they are changed and brought near to become worshipers. There's a humility that takes the place of their swagger. That's what the gospel does. It changes us. And the way that God does this and uses this and makes this happen is by God's people coming together saying, we believe that God holds all things together, that this Jesus is not absent from this earth, but is radically present right here, right now. And he cares about our lives. He cares about what happens in the affairs that take place in this nation, in this culture, in this society. So here's why. Here's what I want to do. Uh, this past week, obviously just struck with the reality that like, we, right now, our nation is, analysts are saying, more divided than it's ever been in 225 years of history. What's the solution? And look, if, if I start throwing down some issues, we'll be divided right now because we will be polarized. And I guarantee you, in a group this large, and as diverse as we are, there are people here that are on the left, lean heavily left. There are people that are like absolute fox quoting believers of the right. And then people in between. And my point of the matter is, is that it's not about somehow trying to figure out how all these things sort of work together. It's how we as a church can recognize Jesus is here. Jesus cares. Jesus wants to bring life where there was darkness and death. If we believe that, then we'll go to him. If we don't believe that, we'll just turn to more fleshly means. We'll turn to analytics. We'll turn to systems of uh, just creating new systems, new ways. We'll figure out ways how economically we can change things. But if we truly believe that Jesus holds all these things together and that he actually truly wants to break in the darkness with his light and his life, then we'll go to him. So what I want to do is we'll break up into groups of three and six, three to six, somewhere around there. So... I'll say this, if you are not a Christian, we realize that every week there's a lot of people here that are not Christians. We're glad that you guys are here. Don't feel any obligation to pray. You can just kind of be in that circle. That's fine. You can just listen. It's fine. Just, you know, obviously you came knowing that this is church and sometimes we do church stuff and our church stuff is praying. So, uh, but don't feel any obligation. We don't want you to feel weird. That's fine. Glad that you guys are here. Um, if you are a young Christian, you feel a little bit awkward. Maybe you've never prayed out loud. Uh, that's fine. If you'd like to take a step of faith and do that, you're more than welcome to do that. If you feel awkward about that, again, there's no pressure. But what I want to do is we'll break up in groups of like three to six, uh, which means that you guys can stand up, you can sit down, you can get on your knees uh, on the carpet right up here, wherever you guys want. Uh, turn the chairs around, whatever is most comfortable for you to be able to kind of break up into groups. And we'll have some topics, which I'll put up on the screen and we'll pray for as a church and as a group. And so uh, a couple of things I would say. One is... is um, Try not to, to talk, you know, I mean, it'd be easy to kind of get into uh, engaging conversation. Um, definitely, by all means, talk after church. Um, there'll be plenty of time, uh, but our time is limited. And let's just spend the time just praying, asking God 
to create inroads, to create harmony, to create peace. Like at the end of the day, Paul tells us that government was set in place as a means of providing uh, a source for human flourishing. For example, Paul says, do you know that governmental institutions are God's, there's an actual word they even use there, is uh, deacon. Government officials are God's deacons. Not in the church, God's deacons in society so that when something goes awry, when there's injustice, that they can act to bring about justice in order to bring about human flourishing. Do you believe that God actually cares about human flourishing? God totally cares about human flourishing. He cares about orphans. He cares about foster kids that are in the system that are broken. He cares about people that are marginalized. He cares about grandmas that aren't getting their you know, welfare checks. He cares about people in our culture and our society that have been sort of ousted. God cares about all of these people. And the way that God reaches these people is by the church also caring about them. And we become the means by asking God to create, prepare these ways for the gospel to begin to make inroads. So I want to pray specifically, first of all, for our government. And right now, um, our government is totally divided. Division, uh, stubbornness, greed, all of these things, by the way, are ways in which the devil has sought to sabotage God's good creation. And I think it's safe to say that what we're watching right now is our government, to some degree, is very sick. And as a result of that, divided. And it's not for us to sit here and talk about solutions. It's for us to go to King Jesus, who has solutions, to ask him to somehow bring humility, bring about brokenness, to bring about transformation. It's gonna look different. However you guys pray, I'm gonna just trust that you guys will pray. So we'll pray specifically. So next slide, we'll just take a look at the three branches of our government, the White House, Supreme Court, Congress, and some of the names that are on there. Hopefully you guys can read those. If not, um, you can walk up and look at them. That's fine. Um, Hopefully you guys know who's uh, at the top, uh, White House. Um, But why don't we break in those little groups right now and then we'll do this for like a few moments and then we will transition and then actually pray for uh, the governmental officials in San Luis Obispo uh, City, but also because San Luis influences the county. We want to pray for them. I'm, I'm not fully aware of any specific uh, radical, tragic scenarios that are going on with our culture right now in San Luis Obispo or San Luis Obispo County. I know homeless can be a big crisis in a lot of ways, so maybe we can pray for some of those areas, pray that God would give not just simply them wisdom, maybe give us wisdom, maybe, how, maybe God would want to use us to be part of the solution, um, be part of the means of bringing about welfare or you know, helping our community to thrive. Human flourishing is something that God desires. Human flourishing that one day when King Jesus comes again, the whole earth will greatly flourish under the management of King Jesus. And what we're saying right now is that Jesus calls us to pray, let your kingdom come on earth now as it is in heaven. And that's what we're asking God to do. God, do something now that resembles, represents portrays the beauty of what will one day come when King Jesus comes again. God, begin to do that now. Help us to be part of that. So break them in little groups of three and four and just take a few moments to pray and um, go for it.